stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. Uh, nothing. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Welcome to week five of this week's series called The Good Book About the Bible. And hey, before I jump in, I, I uh, just want to tell you uh, a couple things uh, that I'm really excited about. Uh, I, if you didn't know this, we give every person who puts their faith in Jesus here at Relevant, we give them a Bible to commemorate the day that they put their faith in, faith in Jesus. That's why we're always saying, hey, if today you did that, Go to the next step area. we got a gift for you. One of those things uh, is a Bible. Well, to make that day when someone puts their faith in Jesus even more special, we designed, we designed a special relevant Bible cover, and here it is, so that we can give these away to people who put their faith in Jesus in the future just as, as a more special gift. It's a thin-line Bible. It's got uh, soft red leather, some relevant logos on it. Uh, and so I'm excited about this uh, coming here. Well, these will arrive in August. But um, listen, if you don't have a Bible or you want a new Bible or you want a better Bible, you too can have one of these. Uh, and for $35, we're, we're selling these if, if you want to purchase one of these. And every time you do, you will actually be buying two additional Bibles as gifts to be given away in the future for someone who ends up putting their faith in Jesus. So over the next couple weeks today or next week, either the Next Step area or online, go buy one of these and, uh, and you can help uh, make sure that we get these for people to give away as gifts when they put their faith in Christ. All right, if this is your first time here, what we're doing throughout this series is simply trying to address some issues and answer some questions that people have in regards to the Bible. Issues and questions that prevent, many, that prevent people, may, maybe you, from describing the Bible as good. And once again, just so we're on the same page, I want to give just a fast recap of what we mean by the Bible. 66 total books make up what we call the Bible. Two major sections. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, once called the Hebrew Scriptures, is the story of God and the Hebrew people and God's covenant with them. 39 books, all written before Jesus. And then we have the New Testament. The New Testament is the story of Jesus and his church and God's new covenant available for all people. 27 books, all written after Jesus' death and resurrection during the first century. And the, the big idea that I hope you remember at the end of this series about these 66 documents, these 66 books that make up the Bible, is that the purpose of the Bible is not primarily for our information, but for our transformation. We've talked, to, talked about that God didn't reveal what he did through the, the writers of Scripture to answer all of our questions or just give us more information about himself, which is the reason that my goal in this series is not, series is not to try to answer all your questions or address all your issues because I cannot possibly do all of that. My goal by the end of this series is that every one of us take one step closer toward viewing and, the, and engaging with the Bible through the proper lens uh, so that God's ultimate purpose can be achieved in our life, which is to lead us to Jesus, equip us to follow Jesus so that we're transformed by Jesus more into who God created us to be. Now, one of the reasons that I chose to do this series was because while many people know some Bible stories, few people know the story of how we got the Bible. And knowing the story, is a story of how we got it is almost as important as knowing what's in it, because if you don't know the story of how we got the Bible, it's easy to dismiss the stories in the Bible. 
Not knowing the story of how this came to be can cause our issues to grow, our questions to grow. And if that happens, it can cause us to turn away from Jesus and walk away from Jesus. But knowing the story of how we got this helps shed light on what's actually in this. Now the challenge for us, as we've talked about, is the way that we get a Bible is not the way the world got the Bible. See, when we get a Bible, it's all chapter, verse, mapped, and wrapped. But the problem is that's not how the world got the Bible. And so for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the story of how we got what we ended up calling the Bible. Today, I'm going to wrap up that discussion. And then next week, as we, as we wrap up this series, our entire focus is going to be on how to engage with the Bible and read it and understand it and apply it so that God's goal of transforming you more into who he created you to be through it occurs in your life. Now, we, we've discovered throughout the last few weeks that Jesus didn't write the Bible he didn't physically write it, but Jesus is the reason we have it. That the story of how we got the Bible does not begin in the first book of our English Bibles called Genesis. The story of how we got the Bible begins with Jesus. We've got to know the only reason we have a the Bible is because Jesus was discovered alive after he was, uh, after he was crucified on a Roman cross. If Jesus' story had ended on a cross, there would be no the Bible because there would be no story to tell. Jesus would just be another first century wannabe Messiah. He'd just be another Jewish rabbi who said some extraordinary things and, you know, did some cool magic tricks. He would just be another person who died on a Roman cross like so many other people had. So we, 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 we found out a few weeks ago that many people, many people attempted to document the life of Jesus. And the only reason that they attempted to document the life of Jesus is because of what they and hundreds of other people saw. They saw Jesus die on a Roman cross, and then a little while later, a few days later, they saw him alive. The story of how we got our Bible. It begins at the start of what we now call the New Testament with the four documents documenting the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These four documents that we now call the Gospels were all written in the first century, not long after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And immediately the first century church considered these four documents as valuable and reliable and sacred and inspired. And before long they considered them scripture. 200 years before one of these ever existed. Well, as the story continues, we, we discovered within a very short period of time, within a couple years, after Jesus' resurrection, some of Jesus' apostles left Jerusalem and started traveling all over the Roman Empire to tell non-Jewish people, who were called Gentiles, to tell non-Jewish people, Gentiles, about Jesus. And in the first century, thousands of Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire put their faith in Jesus. Asked Jesus to be the forgiver of their sins and leader of their life. And the church exploded. And what we call Christianity today spread like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire in the first century. And this is where the transition in the story happens. Only after Gentiles became enamored with Jewish Jesus. And why would they become enamored with Jewish Jesus? It's, well, it's because they put their faith in him. They declared him as their Lord. Only after Gentiles became enamored with Jewish Jesus did they become enamored with the sacred texts of the Jews. The Hebrew scriptures. What we call the Old Testament. But they were referred to in the first century as the law and the prophets. And Gentile Christ followers, when, when they became interested in the Hebrew scriptures, the law and the prophets, they were not interested in Judaism they were interested in Jewish Jesus. And they knew the Hebrew scriptures, they knew the law and the prophets were the backstory to his story, to Jesus' story. 
Well, by the second century, the Gentile Christ followers adopted the law and prophets. They adopted the Hebrew scriptures as Christian scripture. And then they eventually gave it a new name called the Old Covenant. And it's come down to us by its Latin term, the Old Testament. But, and this is really important, we got to remember this as we talked about throughout this series. Through the third century, through the third century, there is still no the Bible as we know it today. There's just the Hebrew scriptures that the church now considered their scriptures, which caused all kinds of tension and conflict between, you know, uh, between Jewish Christ followers and, and, and Jews, between Gentile Christ followers and Jews. You know, how could you take our scriptures? So there's just these Hebrew scriptures. And then there's these documents of the accounts of the life of Jesus that we call the Gospels. And there's some correspondence by a famous church planner to first century churches around the Roman Empire. And it's to him that we now turn our attention. We know him as the Apostle Paul. And Paul's words are so famous, you probably know what, some of what he wrote, even if you've never read, read the Bible. And this is not an exaggeration. This is widely accepted in, in academic circles. It's not an exaggeration to say the writings of Paul have shaped Western civilization. I mean, it, it, it's crazy what his words, how his words have shaped the world we live in today. I mean, Paul, Paul did more, Paul accomplished more, Paul influenced more than all the other Jesus, Jesus apostles combined. Which is crazy to think about considering how Paul's story started. I mean, in the first century, Paul stepped into the pages of history as the one leading the persecution of the church. Paul was a Jewish religious leader called a Pharisee who the first couple of years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension dedicated himself to putting the church out of business in Jerusalem and in the area around Jerusalem called Judea. And he wanted to do that because he was appalled by Jews like him who abandoned their Jewish religion, who abandoned their Jewish uh, tradition and declared themselves followers of Christ. So he decided he was going to single-handedly put a stop to the whole Jesus movement. And he goes to the high priest in Jerusalem and he gets dead deputized to go around Judea and arrest Jews who, put, who, who say they were followers of Christ. And if they weren't going to you know, come willingly, he was going to kill them. And so he persecuted the church and he arrested so many and he killed so many Jewish followers of Christ. And if you were a Jewish follower of Christ in you know, Jerusalem and the area around Judea, you were terrified at Paul, by Paul. But in one afternoon, everything changed. One afternoon, Paul is on his way up to this city called Damascus because he was going to go arrest some Jewish Christ followers there. If they didn't come, he was going to kill them. And in the middle of the road on his way there, Jesus shows up. Now what you got to understand about that is Jesus has been dead for two years. At least Paul thought so. Paul goes, I know that he died, and I've heard stories about him rising from the grave, but I ain't bought it. And now Jesus is standing in front of him and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me and my church? And Paul's like, holy crud, this dude legitimately rose from the dead. And in one afternoon, everything in Paul's life changed. In one afternoon, he pivots from being a Jewish law-abiding Pharisee who is persecuting followers of Christ, who is trying to put a stop to the church, to being a follower of Christ. Because that's when you do when a guy who's supposed to be dead shows up and talks to you. 
But Paul just wasn't a follower of Christ. He didn't become a follower, just a follower of Christ. Paul became an apostle. An apostle, someone who's been with Jesus and given authority by Jesus. And it's astonishing that God recruited a person like Paul. I mean, why would God choose a person like Paul? Paul is nasty. Paul's a murderer. Like, he could have chose anyone else. Paul deserves everything but the grace of God. Why would God choose Paul? And we don't know for sure, but I have a theory. And my theory is, is that Paul was crazy. Because like, God created Paul just like he created you and me. And created Paul with all this you know, influencing ability. And Paul was using all of that and crazy enough that he was like destroying the church, like being successful at it. And I imagine God looking at Paul and saying, man, if I redirect all that stuff I put in him to making a difference for my kingdom, he's crazy enough to make a big difference. And so God redirected him. I, I want to introduce you to my friend named Dylan. Put a picture up here uh, of Dylan. Dylan, uh, this last summer, uh, he had a friend who's a part of our Tea Life group, and his friend invited him. So Dylan started coming to our Tea Life group this last summer. My wife and I lead a college-age Tea Life group. Dylan's 20 years old, looks 30, but he's, he's, he's 20. So it started coming to our Tea Life group. And Dylan, he, I love Dylan because he was really raw, shared a lot of his story. And Dylan was just a mess. I mean, Dylan is... he. Uh, he's been in two gangs, a ton of trouble with the law. He's super aggressive, super violent. And, but he's, he's, he's crazy. Like, he's just crazy. And I, Dylan, uh, we just got along, and he stepped, kept coming to T-Life group. And then one week he showed up early, and he, we were just talking. And, and I just felt like I was supposed to say this to him. I don't know why uh, at, the, at that time. And I said, Dylan, and Dylan's not a follower of Christ. And I said, I said Dylan, if you were to take all this energy that you're using for violence and hate and to cause destruction, and you would take that and, and, and turn it and make, try to go make a difference for God's kingdom, you would make a bigger difference than anyone I've ever met in my entire life. And he's looking at me like I'm crazy, you know. And, and I just decided every week, starting from that point, I was going to ask Dylan if he was ready to put his faith in Jesus. And six months, for six months, every week, Dylan, you ready to put your faith in Jesus? Nope. Dylan, you ready to put your faith in Jesus? He kept coming. Ready to put your faith in Jesus? Nope. And then three weeks ago, I asked again, hey, Dylan, you ready to put your faith in Jesus? And he said, I am. And so three weeks ago, Dylan put his faith in Christ. Pretty awesome. <laughs> he's still got that crazy beard. I can't get him ready to get rid of that beard. He's still got that beard. Uh, but I believe to this day that if Dylan, the, all, the, all the energy that was used for the negative, if Dylan chooses to totally give it over and, and, and make an impact for Jesus, Dylan will make a bigger impact than anyone I've ever seen before because he's crazy enough to do it. And Paul was crazy enough. See, after Paul met Jesus, he carried the guilt of having persecuted the church for the rest of his life. But God used him in a way that changed the world forever. Christianity exploded throughout the Roman Empire in the first century primarily because of Paul. And I just want to say before I jump in, regardless of your story, regardless of your past and what you've done and how bad of things you've done, regardless of what guilt and shame you carried around, I can promise you it doesn't compare with Paul's. And if God can call and use a guy like Paul... God can use a purse call and use a person like you. Now, Paul, he plays an important role in the story of the Bible for three primary reasons. First, he wrote some of it. 
In the first century, Paul wrote a lot of letters, some to individuals, some to churches. And these letters were considered so valued by the first century church that they were copied and they were circulated. And before long, they were considered scripture. And 13 of his letters survived antiquity and are part of our New Testament today. But this is so important to know, and I've said this many times throughout this series. When Paul was writing these letters, he had no idea that this would ever exist. He couldn't begin to fathom at 200 years later that his letters would be collected in a single book with the Hebrew scriptures and with the, 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 the documents of other apostles and what we now call the Gospels. He did not know that he was writing the books of the Bible. He was just writing letters to churches, many of which he started based on how the Holy Spirit inspired him to. So he wrote some of it. The second reason Paul's important to the story of the Bible is because he explains the relationship between the two major sections, Old Testament and what we call New Testament. If you ever get confused about the, how the Old Testament and New Testament work together, Paul is your guy. He explains how followers of Christ should view and use the Hebrew scriptures, the law and prophets, what we call the Old Testament. And he, and he would know because as a Pharisee, which he was before he became a follower of Christ, he knew the law and the prophets. He knew the Hebrew scriptures inside and out. Therefore, he had extraordinary clarity between the relationship between the Hebrew scriptures and would eventually be called the New Testament because he wrote a lot. Of the, New, of, of the New Testament. So much so, I believe that Paul would give us one important instruction whenever we pick up one of these, and that is to view the Old Testament through the lens of the New Covenant. See, we've got to remember, we've talked about this last week, that the Old Testament, we call the Old Testament, was written to ancient Hebrew people. It was not written to us. We've got to remember that the Old Testament outlines God's covenants and laws with ancient Israel, not with us. We've got to remember that through Jesus' shed blood on the cross, that everything changed. The day Jesus died and then rose from the grave, he fulfilled God's covenants that he made with ancient Israel and through him God established a new covenant that's available to all people. A new covenant we are, where we are saved by grace through faith alone. Where we're not saved by, the, by Israel's laws. We're not saved by the Mosaic law. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. By putting our faith in Jesus, asking him to be the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our lives. And that's why Paul wrote this recorded in, in Romans 10. He says, Christ, Jesus, is the culmination. You know what the culmination is. It's the fulfillment, the end. Christ is the culmination of of the law. He's referring to the Mosaic law and the 600 plus laws and commands that are recorded in, in our Old Testament that God made with ancient Israel that set them apart as his holy and his chosen people. He says Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness, forgiveness of sins, being declared holy before God, redemption, being declared one of, of, God's, of God's chosen people, that there may be righteousness for Everyone who believes. See, under the new covenant, everyone, not just the Israelites, can be declared righteous, but not by following the law given to ancient Israel. See, Jesus fulfilled the requirements of that law through his death and resurrection. We are declared righteous and forgiven and redeemed and promised eternal life through faith in Jesus 
alone. And Paul would say, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, it's God's Word. It's authoritative. It's inerrant. And it should be treated as such. But it has to be engaged through the lens of people who are under a new covenant. A better covenant with better promises. The Old Testament, he would say, you got to remember, is the backstory to the story of Jesus. The Messiah, the Savior, anointed one. With the ultimate purpose of leading you to Jesus. He would say, listen, if you're not engaging with the Old Testament through that lens, you're not viewing it correctly and you're going to miss the reason that we even have one of these which is Jesus himself which means you won't be transformed by Jesus into everything God created you to be and that's the entire purpose for God giving us this thing to begin with now next week we're going to talk a bunch about how to engage with the Old Testament and read it and, 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 and apply it through the lens of the new, of the new covenant you won't want to miss next week I think it will be fantastic But there's a third reason that Paul is important to the story of the Bible. And that is that he authenticates the most important event recorded in it. Now, this is the most important part of this series thus far. And if you've walked away from God in faith or you're considering walking away from God in faith because of something in or about the Bible, I hope you hear what I'm about ready to say. The most important event recorded in the Bible is the resurrection of of Jesus. And you've got to know this. This is so important. I've said it so many times throughout this series. No resurrection of Jesus. No the Bible. Now sometime, somewhere along the way you may have heard a professor or a skeptic say that the resurrection of Jesus is a myth that uh, made up by the, much later in history by the church to propagate the Christian religion. What you got to know is what is so amazing about Paul's letters and why Paul's letters are so important is because Paul's letters are indisputable historical evidence that Jesus' resurrection was accepted as fact immediately, not eventually. I mean, no one disputes that Jesus was a historical figure that died on a Roman cross in Jerusalem. And no one disputes that a guy named Paul wrote uh, uh, wrote a letter to a church in the city of Corinth that we call 1 Corinthians, in the year 55, which was about 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And check out what Paul wrote. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus, that I preached to you when I was with you a couple years ago, which you received, on which you've taken your stand. And then Paul does something cool. He quotes a creed. And a creed is a carefully crafted statement used to ensure important ideas and important truths are accurately transmitted from one generation to the next. So what you got to know is long before Paul wrote this letter, and Paul wrote this letter within 20 years of Jesus walking this earth, long before Paul wrote this letter, the church in Jerusalem had already established a creed about something that they embraced immediately. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you when I was with you a couple years ago as first, as of first important. He's saying, this is the most important thing to remember, what I'm about ready to say. And then he quotes the creed that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He's saying he, he fulfilled the prophecies about the promised Messiah, the Savior anointed one that's in the Hebrew scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. See, this creed, Paul didn't create this creed. It already existed. He was just simply quoting it. And here's the shorter English version of the creed. Christ died for our sin and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. 
Christ died for our sin and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Within months of Jesus' death and resurrection, thousands of people in Jerusalem were putting their faith in Jesus. So very quickly, the church in Jerusalem summarized what Jesus had done through this creed, through this song, through this poem. And within a few very short years, thousands and thousands of others, uh, both Jews and Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire, put their faith in Jesus and embraced this creed as absolute truth. And Paul said, I pass on to you what followers of Christ in Jerusalem believed from the very beginning. Beginning, and he goes on, and that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas. Cephas is another word for Peter, another name for Peter. And it's like, hey, Paul, how do you know that Jesus appeared to Peter after he rose from the grave? Like, how do you know? And Paul's like, because he told me. And, and, then, and then to the 12, he's referring to Jesus' 12 disciples. Like, how do you know Jesus appeared to his 12 disciples, alive to his 12, 12 disciples? And Paul's like, because they told me. And after that, he appeared more to 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of who are still living, because this is only 20 years later, though some have fallen asleep. Paul's saying there's hundreds of people in Jerusalem who saw Jesus after rising from the dead, and they're still alive. If you don't believe me, go fact check me. Go get a boat ticket. Go to Jerusalem. You can ask them for yourself because many of them are still living. The reason the church exploded so quickly in Jerusalem is because so many people saw him alive, and they're still living today, and they can tell you about it today. And then he goes, and then he appeared, Jesus appeared to James, his own brother, his younger brother, the same brother who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah throughout Jesus' entire life, but later became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And I said it before, what would it take for you to convince your younger brother that you were the son of God? Right, it would take all kinds. That's why James didn't buy into it until he saw his brother die and then later saw him alive and he's like, yeah. That's why I didn't win any games when we were kids. You know, like, he saw him alive. And then Jesus appeared to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Paul's point. You can't fabricate, fabricate events while people who could disprove those events are still around. And then a few sentences later, Paul says something that should make us all stop in our tracks. Because he tells us, what our entire faith is based on. And he says, if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. He's saying your entire faith and my entire faith in Jesus is based on one event, the resurrection of Jesus. That one event is the only reason I am even writing to you today. No resurrection of Jesus no reason to put your faith in Jesus because he's just another wannabe Messiah. He's just another rabbi who did some cool magic tricks. He's just another person who died on a, on a Roman cross. And no resurrection of Jesus. No, the Bible. The only reason there is a the Bible is because Christ, Christ, Christ died for our sin and was buried and rose from the dead and was seen. Christ died for our sin and was buried and rose from the dead and was seen. And Paul says, remember that one thing. He said, that's the most important thing. Anchor your entire faith to that one thing because it's anchored in that one thing. And the first century church did. And it's how their message turned the world upside down.
in the first century, and it's how. It's the message that'll turn the world upside down today. But that's for some other time. Bottom line, Paul's important to the story of the Bible because he wrote some of it, he explains the relationship between the two major sections, and he authenticates the most important event recorded in it. Now, in the first century, why the, why the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were being written, and why Paul, Paul was writing, other apostles were writing and dictating as well. James, and Peter, and John. And because who wrote these documents, and, and when they wrote them, and what they wrote in them, the first century church collected and protected these documents. And they considered them valuable, and reliable, and sacred, and inspired. And it didn't take long for these documents to start being considered as Scripture 200 years before one of these existed. And then something amazing happened. By th 324 uh, A.D., Constantine the Great became the undisputed emperor of the Roman Empire. And he lifted the ban on Christianity. And for the first time in history, Christian scholars could come out of hiding and work in the open without fear of losing their lives. And the very empire who crucified Jesus funded the collection and the copying of these documents by the first century apostles. And in the late 4th century, the 39 books of the Hebrew scriptures that we now call the Old Testament, and the 27 documents that make up our New Testament were bound together and eventually called to Biblia or the Bible. Now, I, before we kind of move on from this, I, I do want to address, try to address a question that I've gotten a lot of throughout this series that I uh, haven't been able to talk about yet, and that is how did the 66 books of the Bible get chosen, right? Like, there, why just 66? Why did some not get put in there that looked like they should? Why, why did these ones get put in there? You know, I know there was others written during that time. You know, I watched the History Channel. The History Channel told me about this conspiracy theory and keeping these books out. No, why didn't they get in there? And what about the Catholic Bible? Because there's a Catholic, they got some extra books in the Catholic Bible. Why are they not in our Bible? And by the way, you take classes on this in Bible college that like explore us. And so I'm going to try to do this in five minutes and just give you a quick overview. And then hopefully it gives you some things to chew on and, and think about later. Uh, but in regards to the Old Testament canon. And by the way, the canon, whenever I say that word, it's the collection of documents. So in regards to the Old Testament canon or collection of documents, the answer is actually pretty straightforward. See, after 400 B.C., there were no, additional, no further additions to the canon of the, of the Hebrew Scriptures. Writings after 400 B.C. were not accepted by the Jewish people as having equal authority with their scriptures. In the New Testament, Jesus and the writers of the New Testament quote, quote various parts of the Hebrew scriptures about 300 times. And there's no record of any dispute between Jesus and the Jews over the extent of the canon of the Hebrew scriptures. In short, in the first century, century there is virtually no dispute among, amongst the Jews which books were part of the canon of the Hebrew scriptures now that we call the Old Testament. Now in regards to the New Testament, the, the 27 documents of our New Testament was formally canonized during the Council of Hippo, Hippo in, in the year 393. 
Now, what you need to know at this council, they weren't trying to dis, uh, bestow divine authority on any of these documents. They were trying to recognize which documents already had characteristics of divine authority. Therefore, which ones should be officially recognized as Scripture, recognized as God's Word. And here's the basic criteria they used as a litmus test for a doc to be considered as New Covenant or New Testament Scripture. First, it had to be tied to an apostle. An apostle is someone who walked with Jesus and was given authority by Jesus. So for a document to be considered as New Covenant Scripture, New Testament Scripture, had to be written, dictated, or affirmed in the first century by one of Jesus' apostles. Because all kinds of like counterfeit documents in the second, third century started popping up and people, they'd write it and they'd put an apostle's name on it. Nope, so it had to be written, dictated, or affirmed by one of, uh, by, in the first century by one of Jesus' apostles. Secondly, it had to be widely accepted by the first century church as scripture. If a document wasn't widely circulated and viewed and read as scripture by the first, second, and third century church when they gathered for worship, it immediately did not pass the litmus test. And then third, it had to have a self-evidencing quality. A self-evidencing quality of being divinely inspired or divinely authoritative. Meaning it couldn't contain any conflicts with anything in the other documents that were immediately recognized as scripture in the first century. And it must have a consistent message within itself. Any document that did not pass this litmus test was excluded, and all 27 documents that did were included in the New Testament canon, the New Testament collection of, of, of books. Interestingly enough, is 30, year prior, 30 years prior to the formal canonization, canonization of the New Testament, a bishop from Alexandria wrote a letter that contained the exact list of New Testament books that we have today, all of them, no more and no less. You just got to know, today, there are no strong candidates to the New Testament canon, and there are no strong objections to any book presently in the New Testament canon. And I know you go, yeah, but I watched the History Channel, and it made it more complicated. And what about the conspiracy theories? And I get it. The History Channel is going to make it more complicated and do the conspiracy theories because that's what TV is. If they got on TV and said these three things, it'd be over in five minutes. You'd be like, that doesn't sell. You can't even get a commercial on that show. I get it. So listen, you do with that what you want to do. I love the History Channel. I think some of the shows are awesome. You just got to know what's a conspiracy theory and go, that's a cool story. And what's fact and what's not fact. Now, one more thing I want to answer in regards to this and is, is the question, what about the additional books in the Catholic Bible? Like, why is the Catholic, why is it some Catholic Bible has some more books that, that aren't in our? And by the way, if you're Catholic, grew up Catholic, if any of this is offensive to you, I'm not trying to be, I'm just trying to speak in fact. If you disagree with me, that's okay. Go ask your priest. I'm sure they'll have a better answer for it that I'm about ready to give you. The extra books in the, in the Catholic Bible are known as the Apocrypha. And I can't go into this in super detail, but here's just a quick why, you know, they have some extra ones that, that aren't in our Bible. First, no, apocryphal, apocryphal books that are part of the, uh, that would be a part of our Old Testament were never accepted by the Jews as part of Hebrew scripture, as part of their own scripture. Furthermore, as I said a second ago, Jesus and the writers of the New Testament quote various parts of the Hebrew scriptures about 300 times. And not once did they cite any statement from the books of the Apocrypha. It means they were not considered a part of the Hebrew scriptures, a part of the Jewish scriptures by Jews, by Jesus, or by the writers of the New Testament. 
So that's what the Old Testament is. Secondly, apocryphal books that would be a part of the New Testament did not pass the litmus test that I just described to you. You've got to know this. It was not until 1546, 1546, just 500 years ago, 1546 that the Catholic Church officially declared these extra books to be a part of the Bible. And the entire reason that they declared these books to be a part of the Bible was in response to the Protestant Reformation. And that these books, the apocryphal books, support teachings in the Catholic Church that the Protestant Reformation rejected. So bottom line, you got it, books that contain support to the, they contain support to what the Catholic Church teaches, teachings that are inconsistent with the New Testament and Old Testament that we have in our Bible. So that's kind of the 30,000 foot overview. Like I said, if you know you disagree with that, you're like, doesn't make sense to me, go ask your priest to ask them why, why they're in there. I'm sure they'll, they'll give you a better answer than that. But here's what I, I really want you to remember as we kind of wrap up this talk about the story of how we got the Bible. Here's what I want you to remember over the last few weeks, and that is this. The Bible as amazing as it is, as inerrant as it is, as authoritative as it is, as God's word as it is, as powerful as it is, did not create Christianity. Christianity is the result of an event that launched a movement that produced documents that were collected, protected, and bound into a book. Christianity, our faith as followers of Christ, is the result of an event the resurrection of Jesus that launched a movement, the church, that produced documents, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and the epistles of Peter, and Paul, and others. And these documents were collected and protected because they were considered valuable, and reliable, and sacred, and inspired. And eventually they were bound together in a book that we call the Bible. But you've got to remember, no resurrection, no the Bible, because the story of Jesus wouldn't be worth telling. But the reason his story is worth telling is because of its huge implications for us, its huge implications for you. And because of that, here's my encouragement and here's my invitation to you today. Start reading it. Start reading it. God used this book not only to change the world, but he has used this book to change my life. It's why I read it every single day. And God wants to use it to transform you more into who he created you to be. But that cannot happen if you don't read it. And like I said, next week I'm going to wrap up this series about, you know, talking about how to engage with it and read it and apply it through the, you know, lens of being, you know, uh, under the new covenant. You, you won't want to miss next week. But my, my second invitation to you and encouragement to you is to start anchoring your faith to the resurrection. You know what an anchor is? An anchor keeps a ship secure and stable when the storms come. That's what anchoring your faith to the resurrection is going to do for you when the storms come. When the storms of questions and the storms of issues. What you're, going to, you're going to have questions. You're going to have issues about the Bible. When those things arise, it doesn't have to shake your faith. Because our faith is not based on the Bible tells me so. Our faith is based... On Christ died for our sin and was buried and rose from the grave and was seen. Christ died for our sin and was buried and he rose from the grave and was seen. That is what the first century church anchored their faith in to, to long before one of these even ever existed. And so when you find yourself doubting, when you find yourself wondering, when you find yourself like, I just can't bring this all together, just look to Jesus in his resurrection and remember, Christ died for our sin and was buried. And he rose from the grave and was seen. 
I have a good buddy of mine. He's not a follower of Christ. Grew up Catholic, and he's just got a ton of questions. And we've had so many hours and hours of conversation. And he sits down. And he's like, Ron, you just can't buy into all this stuff. And you know, yeah, Adam and like an apple and sin entered the world for a guy eating an apple. And then you know, Noah's Ark, yeah, and like two, a dude got on a ship with all the animals, and you know, and killed everyone off. But now all, you know, he just can't buy. It. And I'm like, I was like, dude, you need to slow down because you need to know. That's not what my faith is based on. My faith is not anchored to Noah's Ark. My faith ain't anchored to an apple. My faith is anchored to Christ died for our sin and was buried. And he rose from the grave and was seen. Because that's what matters. And he's like, it's that simple for you? I'm like, yeah, it's that simple for me. Now, the reason I believe all that other stuff is because Jesus believed it, and as I've said before, I just go with the guy who predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled it off. Like, I'm going with that guy. Like, if he believes it, yeah, I believe it too. Now, here's my final invitation to some of you. For some of you, my invitation is put your faith in Jesus. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, you need to know he died for you. For the forgiveness of your sins, for your violation of sin against the holy creator God that you deserve death for. And then he rose for you to prove that he can forgive you and give you eternal life. And that's the ultimate purpose this was even given, was for that message. And that's why this is so good. And so if you never put your faith in Jesus, I invite you to do that today. I invite you to ask him to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life for your forgiveness. So you can receive eternal life. And so that God can begin to transform you into everything he created you to be. The story of the Bible. The story of the Bible reminds us that the most important question is not, are you at peace with everything in this? The most important question is, are, have, you found, have you found peace with God who so loved the world that he gave his son for you? So you could have eternal life and a relationship with him. So if you haven't found peace with God, through faith in Jesus. Let me ask you the same question I asked Dylan week in and week out. Hey, today, today you're ready to put your faith in Jesus? If so, as I pray, you can pray quietly right where you are, asking Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you um, for sending your son for us for dying on the cross for our sin and rising from the grave. I thank you that our faith is anchored in that. And I pray for every person who never put their faith in you, Jesus, that today, right now, at this moment, where they're at, they put their faith in you by asking you to be the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life. I pray you meet them in this place and you begin a transforming work in them. In Jesus' name, amen.